Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to St Anthony's. Uh, my name is Nick Stadlin. I'm a retired High Court judge, and uh, last year I had the honour of being the Alistair Horne Visiting Fellow here at St Anthony's, working on a book about uh, Bram Fisher and the other lawyers and defendants at the Rivonia trial at which Nelson Mandela was sent to life in prison. Uh, I'd like to welcome you uh, on behalf of Catherine Costello, my St Anthony's co-convener, and myself to this, which is the second uh, in a new series of seminars on law and politics. Uh, and it is hoped that it will serve as a pilot for an ongoing series of lectures and seminars on topics raising uh, issues of legal and political interest. The title of today's seminar is Brexit and the Role of Parliament. Harold Wilson uh, famously said that a week is a long time in politics. And ever since the referendum on the 23rd of June, uh, it's become more like a day is a long time in politics, and in particular in the politics of Brexit. Even in this last week alone, we've had Tony Blair in The New Statesman, John Major uh, entering the pitch, uh, and a new legal challenge, as if there weren't enough already, uh, for, uh, against the power of, for a declaration that the government doesn't have power to withdraw from the EEA. Those of you who haven't been paying attention will, uh, may not be aware that there is something called the EEA, there's something called the Single Market, there's something called the European Union, uh, and you need to keep a uh, very uh, tight watch on all these concepts. Uh, we've heard that one of the problems going forward in Brexit is that we don't have enough uh, trained trade negotiators, and it'll take 10 years to find and train up the trade negotiators, but I'm sure there'll be no shortage of lawyers. And indeed, uh, if you look to my right, you'll see that uh, that is the case this evening. Next Monday, uh, the Supreme Court is going to hear the government's appeal uh, in the Miller case, in which the High Court held that uh, the government has no power in the exercise of its uh, royal prerogative uh, to with trigger the artif Article 50 notice uh, to withdraw the United Kingdom from the EU. Uh, without doubt, it already is one of the most important constitutional law cases of the last hundred years. Uh, and the events and debates that have raged since the 23rd of June have raised uh, a number of issues relating to almost every organ uh, of the unwritten British constitution. The role of parliament, the role of the government and the, in the exercise of its royal prerogative, the role of referenda, the role of general elections, and the role of the judges. Uh, many questions uh, have been raised about legal, political, and democratic and constitutional legitimacy. The focus of today's seminar is specifically the role of Parliament in the events still to unfold. And this obviously raises both legal, constitutional, uh, but also political issues. Parchi, the Daily Mail, and the Daily Telegraph, the Miller case turns on pure question of law, an interpretation by the judges of the constitutional issues uh, about the limits of the royal prerogative. The, uh, as we will hear in uh, the, the uh, contributions that we're going to have, that raises a number of legal issues. It raises uh, the correct interpretation of Article 50 under the treaty, is it or isn't it revocable? It raises questions uh, of whether, by triggering Article 50 under the treaty, 
uh, it does or does not have the automatic effect uh, of uh, withdrawing uh, from citizens in the United Kingdom rights that were conferred on them by the European Communities Act. One of the curiosities that if the Supreme Court decides to go behind the concession made by the government and by the claimants in the court below, that uh, notice once given under Article 50 is irrevocable, uh, it will have to decide that question. And unless that question is held by the Supreme Court to be known as what is called Act Clare, uh, then it will have to refer the matter to, guess where, the European Court of Justice. Uh, and no doubt the uh, headline writers of the Daily Mail are already sharpening their pencils uh, in the event of an adverse finding. Onomi du peuple, for example, but it may be less polite than that. But whatever the outcome of the Miller case, uh, it will have not just legal implications, it will have political implications on a whole series of political issues. And we also want to go into those issues today. Does Parliament have the right to decide uh, on the terms of Brexit as distinct from whether and when Article 50 should be triggered? Is that a separate question, uh, as Remainers uh, would argue, because it wasn't on the ballot paper in the referendum? Or, as the Brexiteers argue, is this simply a backhand way of trying to go back on the outcome of the referendum? Uh, is it possible, uh, is it impossible, as the uh, Remainers say, to look into the hearts and minds of the 17 million people who voted leave uh, and know why they voted leave and what they were voting for? Uh, or is it obvious, uh, as many of the Brexiteers say, that what people were voting uh, for was, at the very least, ending the uh, jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice uh, and ending free movement of labour? And if that's what it is, and assuming that the European Union is not going to let us stay in the single market uh, without those two things, is this in fact just trying to go back on the referendum? Do the people have the right to change their mind in the light of the terms ultimately on offer from the European Union at the end of the negotiation process and in the light of unfolding economic consequences of the referendum insofar as they manifest themselves before the end of the two-year period? Tony Blair and John Major have recently entered the lists and said, yes, they do. Norman Lamont immediately entered the lists and said, no, they don't. If the people do have the right to change their minds uh, or to decide on the terms of Brexit, of Brexit uh, should that be through Parliament? Should it be through another referendum? Should it be through a, second, through a general election? Uh, we are fortunate to have on the platform three very distinguished speakers who will be able to answer all of these and other questions uh, all in the space of an hour and a half. The four... <laughs> well, we had, this is the second seminar. We had a seminar yesterday, and the question was, uh, it was conscience and the rule of law, I is it ever justified to break the law? And the conclusion was, these are very interesting questions, but very difficult, and there are no obvious answers. <laughs> well, that's except one speaker, Lord Joffe, Joel Joffe, who was Nelson Mandela's solicitor, said, it's a very easy answer, you just do the right thing, and if it's unjust, you uh, disobey the law. Uh, Sir Sidney Kentridge and uh, Justice Kate O'Regan thought it was a bit more complicated than that. The format is that each of our speakers will make an opening presentation 
there will then be a discussion between them and then it will be thrown open to the floor for questions uh, and comments. Um, our first speaker is Professor Paul Cray, uh, Professor of English Law at Oxford University. Paul and I uh, first uh, shared a platform. Well, I thought we shared a platform, but Paul actually reminded me we didn't quite share a platform. But we first met 15 years ago when we were both instructed uh, on the same side, I'm pleased to say, uh, in the appeal to the House of Lords uh, in the BCCI litigation. Uh, and the main beneficiary of that, apart from our client, the Bank of England, uh, was that I got uh, a very good education, free education, in public law from Paul. Paul has written a brilliant paper called Brexit, a Drama in Six Acts. Each act is prefaced with very apposite quotes from Shakespeare, and it contains a coruscating critique of most of the politicians involved in Brexit, both for and against, uh, but also a very sharp analysis of the legal issues arising out of the referendum. He's also written four blogs, one before the uh, Miller case and three after the Miller case, uh, and I commend both his article and those blogs uh, to everybody here. Please welcome Paul Craig. Nick, thank you very much for that um, kind introduction. Uh, the only thing I just say it's now five blogs. They're not going up quite exponentially, but there are now five blogs, not four. Um, so, I was told, instructed, that I should speak for between 12 and 15 minutes, but no more than 15 and closer to 12, and that my brief was to try and outline in taking account of the fact that the audience was mixed and that not everyone has the same fascination with pure legal issues that lawyers do. Um, that I should try and outline the nature of the legal issues which are going to be decided by the Supreme Court on Monday in the light of the Divisional Court's decision uh, earlier in the autumn. So I'm going to spend some of my time giving you an outline of the principal legal issues in Miller. If I were to give you an outline, an outline of the detailed legal issues in Miller, then Nick would have to call in for pizza and we would lock down and we might get out by about midnight. And I think that probably most of us have other things to do. Uh, so it is an outline. And then I'm going to say something about the political dimension as well. Okay, so... Let me begin with one fundamental, because we are talking about the role of Parliament in relation to the triggering of Article 50. And the point I'm about to make is startlingly simple uh, and straightforward, and I think it's also incontrovertible. But I think it is important to have it in perspective. And it's this. If Parliament of its own volition, without any interruption or intervention by the court, chose to enact a statute which stated that the triggering of Article 50 was dependent upon the assent of Parliament, 
then that would, by standard constitutional doctrine, prevent the, the executive from triggering Article 50 through the use of the prerogative. It's a very simple proposition, and I think un incontrovertible. If anyone thinks it's controvertible, I'd be very happy to discuss that with them. The reason for that is that statute trumps the prerogative, so even if prima facie there is a prerogative power to negotiate treaties, if Parliament unequivocally enacts a statute within its own parliamentary sovereignty in the manner to which it is inexorably entitled to do, stating that the triggering of Article 50 was predicated on the prior assent or consent of Parliament, then it would be constitutionally and legally entitled to do so. In other words, it is important to understand that parliamentary voice in this matter is not logically or legally contingent upon or dependent upon the courts giving Parliament that voice. Now, an alternative way in which Parliament might have voice is as a result of the Miller decision. But I think it's very important to understand that if Parliament had, of its own volition, chosen to enact a statute of the kind that I just mentioned, then it would have been game over. Okay? It would have been game over. The executive could not then exercise the prerogative power to trigger, or they could not trigger Article 50 through the prerogative power. However, that has not happened, and therefore we've had the Miller decision. Now, the Miller decision turns, as Nick said, on the central issue about whether the triggering of Article 50, Article 50 included in the Treaty of European Union, containing the mechanism by which a state would seek to leave the Union, uh, and included in the Lisbon Treaty for the first time, the issue in Miller then is whether Article 50 can be triggered by the executive through the prerogative, or whether recourse to Parliament through a statute is required. Now, that's the simple proposition, or the basic proposition, in the Miller litigation. There are a number of lines of argument in Miller, but again, given the exigencies of time, I'm going to concentrate on the two principal lines of argument. The cases of constitutional importance, and as Nick said, it will go down in history whichever way it goes, as a case of fundamental importance, because the case forces us to decide upon limits of the prerogative in a way which we haven't done or the courts have not done for some time. We start off with the basic proposition that the executive as part of the prerogative power, undoubted prerogative power, has the ability, the power, the capacity to negotiate treaties and indeed to conclude treaties which are then subject to ratification according 
to the constitutional requirements of UK law. But that prerogative power has always been bounded. It's always been limited, and it's the nature of those limitations which are at stake in the Miller litigation. There are two principal reasons which underlie the decision in the Divisional Court, which where the Divisional Court said, no, you couldn't do this through the prerogative, you'd have to do it through, you'd have to get consent, um, or you'd have to secure an Act of Parliament first. The first argument is that the prerogative is bounded because dating from the 17th century, the argument is that the prerogative cannot be used in such a way that it would alter the law of the land, and that includes in this respect taking away rights which are currently enshrined in a UK statute. Okay? Now, the argument, again, I'm painting at a reasonably detailed level, but in outline. The key argument in this respect advanced by the claimants in the Divisional Court was that once you pull the trigger of Article 50, then the bullet, as it were, goes inexorably to its destination. So once you trigger Article 50, it is irrevocable. It's an irrevocable step to withdraw from the EU. And the consequence of that is that rights enshrined in UK law through the U European Communities Act, including also rights of citizenship, of EU citizenship and the like, are taken away. Okay? In the Miller litigation, the government side conceded the argument about irrevocability. So the point was never truly contested, and indeed in the Divisional Court's decision, the issue about revocability gets four lines, and no more than that, where the Divisional Court says, well, this is irrevocable, uh, uh, and um, the matter is not taken any further. Now, my own view about this, and I've explained it in uh, a blog, um, uh, is that I do not believe that Article 50 is irrevocable. I do not believe it is irrevocable. And I set out, I can't go into all the arguments as to why, there's a set out in, in one of the blogs that I've written on the Human Rights Hub website. But the key point is that I believe it's not irrevocable. Now, I also accept that the issue is not, as Nick put it, at Clare, that it is not, as it were, straightforwardly obvious that it is revocable. It's not straightforwardly obvious that it's irrevocable. There are arguments both ways. Okay? Now, what that means, as Nick said, absolutely correctly, of course, is that if the Supreme Court thinks that the revocability issue is necessary for the resolution of the case in the context or the wording of Article 267 of the uh, Lisbon Treaty, then it would have to make a reference to the 
European Court of Justice and the European Court of Justice would be the final arbiter on that issue. Now, while I believe that Article 50 is revocable, I also accept that there's an open issue or a contestable issue as to not only whether it's revocable or irrevocable, but whether if it's revocable, there are three possibilities as to the conditions for revocation. It might be revocable unilaterally, it might be revocable by qualified majority on the or in the Council of Ministers, and it might be revocable on the basis of unanimity. Those are all three possibilities. Now, while my own preference is probably for unilateral revocability, if I had to take a punt now, if I had to offer odds now about what the, Supreme, what the European Court of Justice would say if it went there, I think they would go for the via media and say that it's revocable with a qualified majority uh, um, in the Council. A qualified majority in the Council, note, is what the condition is for agreeing to a withdrawal agreement if a withdrawal agreement is made pursuant to Article 50. And I think they would analogise from that requirement and say, well, a qualified majority suffices for making a withdrawal agreement, therefore a qualified majority should also suffice if a state wishes to revoke a withdrawal. I note here, however, in passing, because I think it is important as a matter of principle, that the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, which is the canonical uh, treaty for the interpretation of all treaties, is predicated on the assumption uh, that a withdrawal notice of the kind that we're talking about here is unilaterally revocable. However, and the reason why the fifth blog, the fifth blog is important, the reason why the fifth blog is important is that in that blog, Mark Friedland and I contend that even if Article 50 is revocable, the claimants have a good case. In other words, even if Article 50 could be revoked, there is still a very strong reason for arguing that the triggering of, uh, triggering of Article 50 um, places the rights of uh, which were enshrined in EU uh, from EU law in the UK in jeopardy. Uh, not just in jeopardy, but actually uh, places them at the kind of risk which requires approval from Parliament first. Now, without getting overly technical, I should say also, because I don't want to be um, misinterpreted or accused of leaving something important out, that one of the other rather um, nice, in inverted commas, legal points which is going to be raised before the Supreme Court is an argument which was put forward elegant, elegantly uh, and powerfully by my colleague Professor Finnis, John Finnis, who has argued that the claimant's case in the Miller decision before the Divisional Court and in the reasoning of the Divisional Court was beset by a syllogistic fallacy. 
great stuff. It's exactly, it's exactly what you kind of expect academics to say. You know, spotting a syllogistic fallacy at 50 paces in a dark alley on a rainy night. Um, uh, uh, it's, it's a powerful argument. So John Finnis is basically arguing that all this stuff about the triggering of Article 50 taking away um, rights enshrined in UK law is based upon a fallacious argument because he distinguishes between rights created by a statute and rights enacted in a statute. I don't have time to go into the argument now. However, if you want a response to that argument where I think, that although I have great respect for John Finnis, I do not agree with the argument, blog number four... Um, uh, and I get brownie points for how many times people look at my blogs. I don't really, but... Um, in any event, blog number four is a response to that argument. And blog number four sets out the argument why I do not agree with John Finnis's argument. I'm sorry I'm running out of time. So very quickly, that whole argument that I've just been talking about, about whether the triggering of Article 50 takes away, amends, destroys rights enshrined in UK law is but one of the principal arguments in Miller. The other, the other principal argument, which is related but distinct in Miller, is a different kind of limit placed upon the prerogative. And this is the argument that where statute and the prerogative cover the same ground then the prerogative has to give way to the statute the idea being the normative idea underlying this being that a statute has the imprimatur of parliament it has the democratic credentials and credibility of parliament and that therefore if parliament has spoken on an issue covered by the prerogative then the statute trumps the prerogative. And this uh, goes back to uh, the famous, most famous example of this is a decision of the House of Lords in the case called De Kaiser's Royal Hotel. And in that case, the House of Lords denied parallelism. They denied the idea that you could have a prerogative power and a statutory power tracking each other in parallel where they covered the same issue. Now, in effect, in the divisional court, the divisional court, as an independent line of argument from the one about the effect on rights, also concluded that the European Communities Act had, in effect, covered the entire ground and, therefore, for that reason, precluded withdrawal based solely upon triggering through the prerogative. Now, um, I've got about two minutes left, so very briefly, the Supreme Court's going to have its um, work cut out because not only does it have all these arguments to consider, it's having extra interveners, um, uh, including the um, Scots and the Welsh and the Irish are all uh, piling in. The, I cannot resist saying that the Scots case 
proves once again that Nicola Sturgeon is the smartest politician in the UK because the Scots win whether whatever happens. She wins whatever happens. Why? Well, basically the Scots are going to argue that if Westminster has a voice, then their parliament must have a voice too. Okay? It's more complicated than that, but that's in essence what she's arguing. Now, look, I mean, if she succeeds, and if the Supreme Court agrees with her, she wins. And she has a wonderful bargaining chip with the Prime Minister. She can basically say, I might deliver a yes vote to you, but what are you going to give to me in return? She has great leverage in those circumstances. Okay? If the Supreme Court says no, actually, she might, in truth, prefer it. Why? She is head of the SNP. And if the Supreme Court says no, then Nicola Sturgeon turns around to the Scottish people and says, hey, I tried. I'm not sure, she's, I'm not sure she would say, hey, I've tried, but you see the essence of the point. She'd say, look, I'm trying to get Scottish voice in these negotiations and I'm being blocked and the powers that be in the South will not give Scotland voice and therefore that increases the strength, or, or then increases the reasons why we should be independent. Um, the uh, Prime Minister's nightmare on Elm Street in terms of legal challenges has of course been exacerbated further by the point that Nick mentioned about the, the new challenge on the horizon based upon Article 127 of the EEA agreement and if anyone wants me to wax lyrical about that I will uh, in due course in the course of discussion very briefly my reasons on the political side and here I will be um, a little less delicate and a little more brutal um, uh, it's not in my nature really but I will um, uh, so two points is it contrary to constitutional tradition for Parliament to have a future voice on this issue when the withdrawal agreement has been made and a future voice such that it might change its mind or suggest that the people change their mind. To my, in my view, the answer to that is unequivocally no for two reasons, one particular, one general. It's definitely not inconsistent with our constitutional traditions because the Constitutional Reform and Governance Act of 2010 gives Parliament, or gives the Commons, and to some extent the Lords, voice in that respect. Secondly, the reason why it's not contrary to our constitutional tradition for Parliament to have voice is more fundamentally based upon the idea of parliamentary sovereignty. It is Constitutional Law 101 in the UK that if there is any limit on parliamentary sovereignty as traditionally conceived, the limit is that the one thing that Parliament cannot do is bind its successors. So the fact that uh, Parliament takes one step now doesn't mean in any sense it should be precluded in constitutional terms from taking a different view two years hence. Finally, do I think that it would be 
wrong or unconstitutional for the people to be offered a second choice. The point that Nick raised in his own uh, introductory analysis. Again, my own view, I realise that this raises um, powerful feelings one way or the other, my own view is I do not think there's any reason why the people should not be offered a voice for a second time. I can think of no circumstances in which uh, one would regard oneself as being bound by a decision made where the details about the nature of the agreement thus made are so unclear at the time when the decision was actually ultimately reached in June on June the 23rd. The devil is in the detail and I simply do not believe that the people actually necessarily uh, were aware of the details to which they were agreeing. The second reason why I do not believe that it would be unconstitutional or undemocratic to have a second referendum is that if we have one and if the people say yes we're happy to go out on the terms of the agreement uh, which is put before them, then we leave. We leave. Game over. Okay? But at least they would have taken that decision cognizant of the terms on which we were actually leaving rather than on the basis of a deal that the content of which was unclear when it was initially agreed. Uh, sorry, when the referendum was initially, uh, the vote was initially taken. One final, final footnote, and I can't avoid it. Um, the temptation is too great. When the Brexiteers keep saying you're trying to turn the clock back, you won't accept the vote of the people. I am constantly reminded of Nigel Farage at 10.30 on June the 23rd when he thought he had lost, when he thought that the vote was going against him. Did he accept honourably that it was game over? To the contrary, his initial reaction, and he saw nothing odd about this at all, is, right, we'll be back, we're going to fight this again, and we're going to fight this again at the earliest possible opportunity. It suits the Leave camp, to maintain the idea now that the voice of the people once spoken is inexorable. It didn't suit them then. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Paul. Uh, we've learned apart from anything else that a week uh, is um, a long time in Paul Craig blogs on Brexit. Uh, <laughs> Our next speaker is Martin Howe QC. Uh, the words QC tell you he's a barrister. Those of you like me who were sitting next to Martin uh, for the last 20 minutes would have known he was a barrister anyway, just as you'd have known that Sidney Kentridge, who was sitting in that chair yesterday, was a barrister because he was displaying all the manifestations I recall when you're about to speak and you're that the other side is speaking twitchy fingers and just anxious <laughs> to get to the left. So Martin, Martin is the chairman uh, of uh, new organisations called Lawyers for Britain. Uh, he has been prominent in the public debates about Brexit, 
uh, and he has secured a notable victory last week in getting permission by the Supreme Court to be allowed to uh, make written submissions in support of the government's uh, appeal next week, and those would be in support of the appeal, yeah. um, and those submissions uh, are now available. Martin. Right, shall I go here? Yeah. Uh, well, good afternoon. Um, I, I will um, uh, I, I'll try and be brief about the Miller case to leave me a little bit of time um, to talk about uh, wider issues and the role of Parliament over the next two and a half years um, in the process uh, by which we leave the European Union. Uh, I, but I'll, I'll start uh, with, with just a very brief bird's eye view of the Miller case. I mean, since the hearing is so close, uh, there will be a hearing, then there will be a decision, then there will be a judgment. Um, the extent to which sort of ventilating, debating all the details of the issues uh, may, may be diminishing. However, um, uh, on, uh, ju just to explain um, uh, uh, our involvement as lawyers for Britain, um, the rules and the standing orders of the Supreme Court have increasingly encouraged uh, busybodies um, to stick their sticky beaks into Supreme Court cases. And indeed, there's specific encouragement in the practice direction uh, for uh, organisations, non-governmental organisations, seeking to make submissions in the public interest. Uh, and, and this has been widely used by, if I can put it this way, organisations of a certain political character um, to intervene in many Supreme Court cases over, over recent years. Uh, and uh, 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 this it struck us um, uh, for two reasons that this was a helpful development. What, one is uh, that uh, we, we've closely examined the arguments of the government in support of its appeal, uh, and uh, we feel that there are a couple of additional significant arguments that the court would benefit from hearing, uh, uh, which are not in the government's case. Uh, and secondly, uh, uh, we feel that um, there are that this case is all about people's rights. There is a whole load of claimants and our respondents moaning about uh, the fact that exit from the European Union will take rights away. For example, the right to stand for election to the European Parliament is one of their key rights. Uh, and, and there are a load of other people, Scotch, Welsh, Irish and others. Um, the Independent Workers' Union of Great Britain, for example, uh, with other complaints about their rights. Now, everyone's, all these people are talking about their rights. Well, there are other people's rights are also involved in this case. Specifically, we feel that the rights of 17.4 million people who voted for leaving the European Union, ought to uh, be taken into account. Uh, and their rights, for example, not to be subject to laws made by the European Parliament strike us as as important, or indeed more important, than other people's rights to uh, stand for election to that body. Indeed, if, if that body had no jurisdiction uh, over the United Kingdom, I'd be terribly happy if as many people in this country as possible who want to could stand for election and go away and sit in the European Parliament. But uh, we, so we, we strongly feel that the, um, uh, it is important when this case is looked at uh, that the rights of those who participated uh, in the biggest single exercise in participatory decision-taking and democracy uh, should be respected. 
Uh, now, how does that uh, come into the issues in the case? There's one main issue, uh, which, which Paul Craig uh, has, has outlined, uh, which is uh, the extent to which uh, there may be an implied restriction on the exercise of the prerogative uh, which prevents the, the government, or the, 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 technically the Queen, of course, uh, exercising prerogative powers uh, to withdraw from the treaty. Uh, now, it's actually somewhat more complicated, and, and I, I won't repeat the... Uh, Paul Craig's described his little uh, uh, dispute with or disagreement with Professor Finnis. Uh, what the 1972 Act does, it, it, uh, it does not uh, enact uh, a load of rights arising from the uh, European Union membership. What it does is it provides in Section 2, Subsection 1, a gateway through which the treaties, insofar as they purport to be directly effective, will be given effect and recognised in our domestic courts. Uh, the body of rights, legal rights and norms coming from the treaties is fluctuating over time. Uh, it fluctuates both because the treaties themselves uh, can be amended and are interpreted differently at different times, principally by the Luxembourg Court, uh, but and it also fluctuates uh, because different uh, regulations uh, are, are passed or revoked or amended. Uh, all these things have the effect uh, of altering legal rights in our law. Uh, all these activities under the treaty are conducted uh, uh, where the United Kingdom is involved by the Crown acting under the prerogative. So it is a statute which expressly permits the law of this land, uh, or rights in this land, to be altered via the actions of the Crown acting under the prerogative and without Parliament having to approve those actions, uh, at least in law. There is, in fact, a non-statutory system of parliamentary scrutiny of votes by the government in the Council of Ministers. It also allows, um, and this is where we have the divisional court straining at the gnat um, of the uh, Crown, over which Parliament has a considerable degree of control, uh, uh, being involved in altering law, uh, uh, and uh, swallowing the elephant in the room, if I can slightly mix my metaphors, uh, which is that this system leads to the law of the land being altered by the prerogative acts of foreign states and governments, over which Parliament has absolutely no control at all. And the, the paradigm case is, of course, in any uh, instance where measures are adopted under qualified majority voting uh, under the treaty, it is possible for them to be imposed on the United Kingdom, then to form part of the law of the land here, uh, even if both the government and Parliament are vehemently opposed to them. Uh, so the, the basis um, on which the Divisional Court thought that the prerogative could not be exercised does seem rather difficult to reconcile uh, on the face of it uh, with the structure of the 1972 Act, at least there you can't use the prerogative to change the law of the land. Um, there may be other arguments about uh, in, implicit restriction, um, and, and Professor Craig dealt, uh, mentioned the Dekeza case. Now this is where um, uh, I'll, I'll very briefly explain uh, where our arguments come in. The government argues, well, the prerogative could have been used at any time since the 1972 European Communities Act 
to withdraw from the EEC, as it then was. Well, <coughs> that's a, a very interesting argument. Um, it may even be right. Um, but it does involve either uh, a finding, because of course, there was nothing in the Treaty of Rome uh, explicitly permitting member states to withdraw. Uh, it therefore either involves um, saying there's an Im implied right in the treaty or a right under the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties implicitly to withdraw, which is an interesting argument, or you could have withdrawn by entering into a new treaty. Well, of course, that would always have been possible in international law, but it does involve the proposition that the Crown, acting under prerogative powers, could enter into a new treaty, which, outside the structure of the 72 Act uh, treaties, which cancels out those treaties, which uh, uh, is the, the argument. Uh, now, we, we feel that uh, this slightly misses the point that this is an argument that is unnecessary for the appeal uh, and that there is a much more relevant central argument, and that is that the intention of Parliament regarding Article 50 can only meaningfully have come into existence when Article 50 came into existence. How can Parliament intend in 1972, one way or the other, that the prerogative may or may not be exercised in respect uh, of an article in the treaty that only came into existence, uh, in fact, after 2000 and came formally to Parliament's attention in 2008. Uh, and in 2008, Parliament passed the European Union Amendment Act, <coughs> which did two things. One is that it inserted the Treaty of Lisbon into the treaties which are subject to the 1972 Act, and the Treaty of Lisbon contained within it Article 50 uh, for the first time, permitting explicitly withdrawal from the European Union treaties. So Parliament approved the inclusion of this withdrawal power into uh, the European treaties to which it was giving effect via the gateway of Section 2 of the 1972 Act. Uh, secondly... Uh, coupled with this, Parliament did something else. Now, there are quite a lot of uh, powers, prima facie exercisable under the prerogative, which were newly conferred by the Lisbon Treaty. And in Section 6 of the, 90, of the 2008 Act, Parliament inserted a list, and the section is headed, Parliamentary Control of Decisions. Uh, and uh, in Section 6 of that Act, Parliament had a list of provisions of the uh, uh, Lisbon Treaty, or newly introduced into the treaties by the Lisbon Treaty, which are subject to a system of parliamentary control under which a resolution of each House of Parliament is required before a Minister of the Crown can exercise the prerogative powers. And, of course, uh, Paul Craig made as a point that I, of course, I entirely agree with, Parliament is entitled to restrict... Uh, by law, uh, the, the, the scope or the operation of the prerogative. And here is an example of where it did it. And uh, the restrictions it imposed include one, for example, on Article 48, Simplified Revision Procedure. Crown not allowed to go around uh, si uh, Simplified Revision Procedure amending the treaties uh, without a resolution of each House. What it did not include in this list uh, was Article 50, Parliament considered uh, the powers 
uh, uh, newly conferred by the Lisbon Treaty, it selected some of those for explicit control as regards the exercise of the prerogative. It did not include in this list Article 50, because Article 50 was obscure, unknown. No, it wasn't. It was very well known, very prominent. We say it is impossible uh, to construe the intention of Parliament as having been to restrict the exercise of prerogative powers uh, in in, uh, exercising Article 50. And the exercise of Article 50 uh, is just one way which gives effect to the body of treaties to which Parliament has uh, conferred special status in domestic law uh, via Section 2 of the 1972 Act. Second argument we put forward is a much broader argument. And that is based on, it's an argument that uh, Her Majesty's Government uh, for some reason conceded or didn't want to pursue, and that is the effect of the 2015 Referendum Act. Uh, And uh, what we say about that uh, is that that is an act which provided for a referendum, uh, provided for the question, and uh, uh, what uh, we say is, is Parliament would not have legislated in vain Uh, if uh, there had been in any Act of Parliament an actual clause that said the prerogative may not be used to trigger Article 50, well, one could understand if there was no express clause in the 2015 Act the other way, well, there we are, they haven't provided for it. But here we are, we're talking about a war of implications. Now, if um, uh, the, 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 the claimants in this case want to rely on a wiffly-waffly implication arising from the 1972 Act, the prerogative is restricted, why can't we, and we the people, rely on a wiffly-waffly implication from the 2015 Act um, that if the decision of the people is to leave the European Union, uh, then the Crown necessarily must be given the power uh, to give effect to that decision by the only route by which it can be given effect, uh, which is by giving notice under Article 50. This is a much broader argument, um, and it uh, uh, challenges head-on the uh, entirely erroneous suggestion uh, in the Divisional Court judgment uh, that uh, the referendum was advisory. Um, That apparently uh, remarkable Remarkable. I mean, I don't know if there are any uh, people who are interested in the law of statutory construction here, but uh, uh, we we are unable to find any previous case in which a court has treated a House of Commons library note as being an instrument to be looked at for the purpose of construing a statute. That's exactly what the Divisional Court did in this case, uh, and uh, it it is something which we, uh, you might think, understandably criticise. So th- those are uh, for your interest, and, and if, you're more in- if you're interested in, in looking at uh, these uh, interesting questions in more detail, um, we have placed the submissions on the Lawyers for Britain website. Uh, if you Google Lawyers for Britain, it comes up very easily, uh, and, uh, and, and you're very welcome to have a look at them. Uh, now, what's the next point, issues in the Miller case, and then I'll move off it. The next point is one thing that is not an issue in the Miller case, Uh, I think it may be a very interesting issue, um, as Professor Craig outlined, is or is not Article 50 revocable? And it's not an issue in the case, it can't be, it's totally irrelevant to the issues in the Miller case, totally irrelevant. Uh, And for a very simple reason, uh, the 
suppose in breach of uh, the principles of the law, um, the Crown were by proclamation to purport to change the law of the land, but say it only comes into effect in a year's time. Now, is that made any better or more lawful uh, if uh, uh, the Crown says, oh, well, well, Parliament has time in the meantime to cancel our proclamation if it wants to? Uh, exactly the same argument applies. Either the prerogative permits giving notice under Article 50, and, and indeed the Crown is then entitled to carry on not revoking it, even if it is revocable, until it comes into effect, or it's not. And the fact that uh, in the intermediate period, uh, Parliament might be able to interfere uh, doesn't save it from unlawfulness uh, if it is unlawful. Uh, exactly this is, is very clearly set out actually in the Secretary of State's printed case so I, 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 although that's interesting argument and, and much uh, uh, ink has been spilt on it uh, I, I don't feel it's um, of any relevance to the present case and indeed uh, whether or not it's relevant in the future would depend upon quite a turn of political events finally just the broader question role of parliament in international negotiations um, if the, um, uh, the, the Miller case is not overturned, then it would be necessary for Parliament to pass an Act which says the Crown can uh, 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 exercise uh, the withdrawal right in Article 50. Uh, the Government's intention, understandably, is that uh, such an, a bill uh, would authorise that and do nothing else. There is clearly an intention on the part of... Um, uh, certain um, uh, branches of, of politics to attempt to amend such a bill to add in things like the terms we would like to see negotiated. And let me just stand back from that particular uh, uh, question, which is, is something really that flows out of tactical considerations. Uh, it is not normal practice. Indeed, I don't even know of any instance. First, uh, uh, for... Uh, the, to, for Parliament have to authorise by law the government to conduct international negotiations. Secondly, uh, it, it is common practice for Parliament to have oversight of international negotiations, uh, as at least as the principles uh, that will be, uh, will be sought and the principles will be followed. That is not done via an Act of Parliament. Uh, and uh, it would be quite extraordinary uh, constitutional innovation to have an act of parliament controlling not, not, a, not a treaty at the end of the day do we like this treaty or not but attempting to control negotiation process the reason for that is quite simple because parliament, the supreme parliament of course can say what it likes um, in, in an act about negotiations with other countries but the supreme parliament has no power at all uh, over the reactions of other countries, and indeed, in this case, supranational European Union institutions, to whatever demands may be put forward. Uh, accordingly, um, uh, it, it can, uh, putting in certain statutory objectives or statutory requirements in the negotiations uh, would simply have the effect, amongst other things, of um, the, the counterparties saying, oh, well, um, you, you, you've got to achieve that particular objective. Well, we'll give you that, but here's our, our list of conditions we'll attach that you must agree to as well. And 
again, there is a blind, and here, a blindingly bright elephant in the room, uh, which most of the debate about negotiations with the European Union completely ignores. And that is that one possible outcome of the negotiations is that there is no agreement with the European Union at the end of the process. What's more, that has to be a position, a possibility open to the British government. It has to have the right to say, we are now walking away from the table, there will be no deal. If it does not have that right, then we, we just bow down and accept whatever terms are imposed on us. The right to walk away is vital, absolutely fundamental, and it has to have that in order to negotiate. If we have that, I think we're in a position to negotiate a very good deal. If it doesn't have that right, uh, we, we will not be able to do so. Thank you. Thank you, Martin. Uh, our third speaker is Lord Faulkner, Charlie Faulkner, who was uh, Lord Chancellor and first ever Secretary of State for Justice under Tony Blair, uh, and for a while in Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet until, along with others, he left. Uh, Charlie and I were in chambers together, and uh, 25 years ago, we both took silk on the same day, which came as something of a surprise to some of our colleagues, because by common consent, we had easily far away the two messiest rulings in chambers, which was demonstrated when there was a suspected burglary, and the detective went round all the rooms and could find no signs of a break-in until he got to our rooms. And he said with great shock that uh, both rooms had been ransacked by the <laughs> In fact, there was no Thank you. Nick, thank you very much indeed uh, for inviting me uh, today. I am delighted to be here. I'm delighted to be here because uh, Nick was at university, the same university as I was, two years ahead of me, where he was the president of the Cambridge Union, a Labour president of the Cambridge Union. He then was in the same chambers as I was and was probably the most successful silk in commerce of his generation, despite his untidy room, and now he's here. So we're very, very grateful that he's here. I'm very glad uh, to be speaking on this topic. Can I look at it from a slightly different angle from the way that Martin and Paul have looked at it? What's happened over the last three or four months is that the divisions in British society have become both very apparent and have been accentuated by the result of the referendum. And by the divisions, I mean both economic divisions, those who believe that the way that our economic system works doesn't work for them, as against those who think that it does work for them. Divisions between old and young, and divisions between various parts of the country. During the referendum campaign, if I did events in London, almost every question in London was how could anybody want to leave the European Union? Almost every question outside London was, why did anyone want to stay in the European Union? What's it done for us? In Scotland, the questions were, 
it's possible, isn't it, that the English will want to leave Europe, which just makes me think we came to the wrong conclusion in the referendum. And in Northern Ireland, there were significant divisions, often along sectarian lines. The result in the referendum, unlike any other significant referendum in this country, is that it was 52-48 in favour of leaving. Unlike, for example, the referendum to stay, which is a much clearer vote to stay, unlike the referendum whether there should be a devolved assembly in Scotland, which is a massive vote in favour of devolved assembly. There was a very, very close vote on the referendum in Wales, but that has not caused very substantial division. So the constitution of this country, for the first time, I think, in recent memory, has to deal with this very, very exceptional and exposed division, which is about much more than the European Union. It is about people's sense of how the economic world treats them. Point number one, which seems to me to be key, we didn't vote in the referendum to change anything other than leaving the European Union. And in particular, we did not abandon the rule of law and we did not abandon the main principles of our constitution. For these purposes, it seems to me there are four basic principles of our constitution which are not in doubt and are not affected by the European Union. First of all, Parliament and not the executive is sovereign, by which I mean Parliament can trump anything the executive does. Secondly, rights granted by law can only be taken away by law. Thirdly, the executive conducts foreign policy, including the making and unmaking of treaties. And fourthly, Parliament has an obligation to scrutinise what the executive does. Applying those four principles, how is it to be applied in the light of what has happened? Well, the divisional court in the Miller case was confronted with the question, can we leave the European Union on the basis of a two-year notice? Well, the treaty says that we can, but the argument was the effect of us being members of the European Union is that individuals have rights. And they identified three categories of rights. The right, for example, to equal pay, which doesn't depend upon any statute in this country. It's directly affected from the European Union. Secondly, rights like a right to live in a European Union country. And thirdly, rights like a right to be elected to the European Parliament and a right to vote in a European Parliament election. They accepted the proposition, which is beyond argument, that if you serve the notice and it expires, all those rights can be taken away. So the question for the court in Miller was, can the executive, by its own act, take those rights away? And Mr Martin Howe and his like argues they can do, because it's all about foreign policy, uh, the Divisional Court 
in a pretty brilliant, short, clear judgment that runs to 32 pages, says the reality of what is happening here is that whilst there is the element of the treaty, you are taking away people's rights. You shouldn't be able to do that without the authority of Parliament. Strip away the detail of the case. That strikes me as obviously correct. It must be wrong that where individuals have rights, private rights, large, not all private rights, because there's the third element of rights about being able to vote in the European Union elections, but where they have private rights, it strikes me as immensely out of tune with our Constitution to say that the government, the executive, can snap their fingers and deprive everybody of those rights. And when we entered the European Communities Act in 1972, when we signed all those treaties, we did it knowing this was about much, much more than simply a trade treaty. It was about changing the law in a way that gave people individual rights. So the Divisional Court, in my view, has applied absolutely standard constitutional principles in a setting that feels incredibly unusual because they are, in effect, saying in advance that Parliament has to pass a statute, though they've done that in previous cases as well. But they are enunciating what seems to me to have become a very, very basic principle of English constitutional law, and that basic principle is the executive cannot take away rights that the law gives you. And it is as simple in the divisional court's judgment as that. Now, I don't know what the result will be in the Supreme Court. There are 11 of the finest legal minds in the world that are going to look at it who may have a different view. But the question, I believe, that Brexit poses and the result in the referendum poses is how do our traditional, conventional constitutional doctrines get applied in relation to it? Having said that, it is m the more significant forces that will determine what happens over it's critical that everybody complies with the rule of law is how the politics of this are resolved, by which I mean how Parliament deals with it. MPs are confronted in very many cases with massive majorities in their constituencies one way or the other. If you go to the north of England or the Midlands, massive numbers of Labour MPs are faced with huge majorities in their constituencies for leave. In London, if you go to large numbers of Labour constituencies, you find that they have massive majorities in favour of Remain. What is the right constitutional course for all of these 
MPs when they are confronted by constituencies having very clear views one way or the other. I have no doubt that Martin is right when he says what was said to the British people was they would decide whether or not we would leave the European Union. He's wrong when he says it's anything other than an advisory referendum. It is only an advisory referendum. But there was absolutely no doubt that the public were told they would decide and that if we voted in the referendum to leave the European Union, we have to leave the European Union. I think that is not a constitutional given. We live in a representative democracy, not a populist democracy where referendums decide things. It is open to members of Parliament to vote against the result in the referendum. But that will not last or stick as a political solution. If, for example, Parliament tried to include in a bill authorising the giving of the Article 50 notice a provision that said you can't serve it or you can only serve it in conditions which the government would not meet, the consequence of that would inevitably be that there would be a general election. The consequences of that general election would be that there would be a Brexit majority government because the consequences of having had a referendum in respect of which there is no real sign of buyer's remorse at the moment would be simply to lead to the conclusion that the public in how they voted in the general election would be motivated completely by the sense that a political elite were trying to frustrate the result of the referendum. So I do not think that it is either sensible or right for the politicians to try to frustrate the broad direction of travel given by the public in the referendum that was given to them. It would effectively destroy the power of the politicians at the moment. So we have to leave the European Union. However, in the way that we leave the European Union, the public gave no indication of what that was to involve. And the political difficulty, and it is a huge political difficulty that exists at the moment, is broadly what drove, I think, people to vote to leave the European Union was what they perceived to be a failure of the economic system to deliver for them. So statistically, 77% of people who live in the developed world have enjoyed no increase in their standard of living since the Great Recession began in 2007-2008. For the developed world, globalisation has brought, probably for a majority, a stagnation or a reduction in their standard of living. To be constantly told that you've got to accept globalisation because it will make washing machines cheaper and it's better to live in an open world rather than a closed world is very little comfort if instead of having a job in a thriving steelworks 
which might be dangerous but gives you a place in the world, you end up in a zero-hours zero contract in a call centre, in a place where there is no prospect either of real promotion or real job satisfaction. And if for eight years you haven't been compensated more than you've been previously and you've seen you're going to be poorer than your parents and you've seen that the people who caused the crash have been bailed out by the government and are now getting back to where they were before, then you are quite keen, I suspect, to say something has got to change. I don't know how it's going to change, but it's got to change. And obviously what I am describing is not, is not limited to Britain because of what's happened in the United States of America, that, that, that uh, President Trump-elect can put together a majority of electoral college votes in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, which are all these post-industrial places which are being told that they've got to cope with a globalised world as well. If that's what people are thinking, to say, sorry, you've just got to realise we've got to stay in the European Union, is an absolute non-starter politically. But what is what is the deal that we can get out of Europe. Because the other side of the coin, I believe, is that all the things that have made people feel they want uh, uh, to get out of the European Union, stagnation, a sense of being forgotten by the political elites, being ignored, not having satisfactory work, that is going to get worse if we leave the European Union in a hard way. So what is the solution in relation to that? Well, I believe that immigration in this country has become the proxy for people's concerns about the economy. We have got, as a country, I believe, to remain open to as thriving a trading relationship as possible with the European Union. I don't care whether you call it the single market or not. We've got to get a trading relationship with Europe that gives us as much as we can get of the, of the, of the uh, single market. But we can't move forward in bringing the country back together again unless we restrict or take control of immigration coming from Europe to the United Kingdom. I don't think that necessarily means smaller numbers coming, but there must be a sense that there is control over it. Now, I think you can do that in a number of ways, two particular ways you could do it. First of all, you could enforce more the existing rules of freedom of movement. The rules, as set down and directed from the European Union, provide that if you come to look for a job and you haven't found a job after three months, then you can be removed from the particular country that you're in. Uh, there are particular rules that you can impose that make it harder to obtain benefits within the UK if you don't have a job. You can be much, much stricter about it. Secondly, we could seek to negotiate with the European Union, though I don't know whether this is possible, a emergency break which 
if the character or identity of the nation or the economy was extremely adversely affected by inflows from the European Union, then there should be the ability to impose restrictions at that time. In the EEA, Liechtenstein, which is obviously not comparable in many respects, has that right because it's a small country, but it recognises the principle that immigration can have an effect which can be limited by agreement. Now, we need as much as we can, I believe, to do a deal that both promotes trade but also recognises the concerns of the public about being members of the European Union. What is Parliament's role in relation to this? Parliament is the place where political dissent and difficulty is dealt with in our country. The last thing in the world that would lead to a lasting settlement, I believe, is simply to leave it to the executive. The executive, I believe, have got to be compelled to have a deal that is broadly acceptable to Parliament. Because if it is broadly acceptable to Parliament, then it will have passed the test of at least being able to form a majority across the country, because MPs will by and large reflect their constituents. Now, I do not mean by that, I underline this, I do not mean by that in any Act of Parliament that has to be passed authorising the passing of an Article 50 notice, any restriction on the government in relation to its timing, nor should it have to satisfy any particular tests before it serves the Article 50 notice. But the essence of our Constitution, and Martin made this point very eloquently, is that Parliament has to scrutinise and hold the government to account. It can only do that if the government properly explains what it is doing and identifies what its aims are in any particular negotiation. John Major came before the Commons before he negotiated Maastricht and set out what his aims were in relation to that. The most extreme example of the government's prerogative power is war, where it fights wars. The government throughout the Second World War had to keep Parliament informed as to what its war aims were. Obviously, Parliament should not be told things that the government think would prejudice it in negotiations, but as a result of the House of Commons' ability to scrutinise what government does, they forced the government out of office uh, after the Narvik campaign in 1941 and Churchill took over. Parliament must have the ability to scrutinise what the executive is doing, and my experience of Parliament is that the executive will not wish to go beyond what the Commons would regard as acceptable. If we want to find a durable solution to leaving the European Union, then what the executive should be doing is persuading Parliament that what it's doing is the right thing. Now, at the moment, I can't tell what the executive is doing. We only know from fragments what their policy is. So, for example, um, Mrs May has said Brexit means Brexit. 
for example, in the speech that Mrs May made on the Saturday of the Conservative Party conference, she says immigration comes before the economy. For example, we know that the chief of staff of Mr Mark Field MP, whilst leaving, when leaving number nine Downing Street, which are the headquarters of the Department for Exiting the European Union, wrote on a piece of paper, have your cake and eat it transitional deal doesn't look likely. Now, it is pretty outrageous that uh, an oblique remark like Brexit means Brexit, a very, very broad statement of principle made not to the Commons but to the Tory party conference, and the notes written on an MP's chief of staff's notebook photographed by somebody coming out of the Commons, is the way that the country is finding out how the balance is to be struck between, for example, immigration and whether or not we stay in the single market. Now, simply stating those propositions takes you back, I believe, to the Constitution. Of course, the government has got to say what it's going to ask for in these negotiations. Doesn't have the detail, doesn't have to give its red lines, but it's got to say. Suppose, for example, it said... Our plan is we will seek everything to be the same as before, except that we're no longer going to be in the European Union. There would be absolute uproar. And when the government said, well, we didn't tell you this before we went and mentioned this to the European Union because that would give away our negotiating hand, people would guffaw and say, of course you had to tell Parliament what your position was, so that... Parliament can know what's happening and hold them to account and, if necessary, lose confidence in the government and change the government. This, without doubt, is the most important thing this government is doing. This, without doubt, is the reason why Mrs May is the Prime Minister and her purpose as Prime Minister is to deliver Brexit. Her survival under our constitution depends upon the House of Commons continuing to have confidence in her. How can they know whether to have confidence in her unless they know what she is doing about this central tenet of the reason for her existence? So where I come out in relation to all of this is I think what it is worth that the Divisional Court have got precisely right the way that our constitution interacts with what's happened. Namely, you can't take people's rights away, which is given to them by law, without a law. That's why their rights say... They didn't say you needed a statute, you needed the authority of Parliament, but I think that means a statute. I think Parliament has to scrutinise what the government is doing, and the government has to tell Parliament what it is doing, or else the politics will go wrong, and we will end up in a situation where there is no durable solution to the divisions in society that the, that the vote on the European Union has exemplified and demonstrated. Thank you very much.